When it comes to air quality, the bad news is that wildfires and air pollution have really degraded the quality of our air. But the good news is that we're all realizing that the quality of our air, and particularly the quality of our indoor air, is really darn important. I'm so excited to tell you about Puro Air because in 30 minutes, this device will remove allergens, dust, smoke, and gases from your room. It uses a stronger type of filter called a HEPA-14, and it filters pollutants at a microscopic level. I keep my Puro Air running upstairs where the bedrooms are all night. I love that it's quiet. Cleaner air just hits different, doesn't it? Check out everything Puro Air has to offer at getpuroair.com. That's G-E-T-P-U-R-O-A-I-R.com. One more time for the people in the back, getpuroair.com. Well, hello there and welcome back. My name is Stephanie Safarian and you are listening to episode 171 of the Sustainable Minimalist podcast. On today's show, we are discussing all the different facets of educating our children at home. The pandemic may indeed be on its way out. My first grader is heading back to school full-time next month. Three cheers for that. But even so, the fact remains that an awful lot of learning happens at home, pandemic or no pandemic. And so today, I wanted to explore the ways in which we as parents can instill a love of learning in our children without overly complicating the process. Now, I'm biased because this is my show, but I think today's episode is amazing. And that's because I am bringing you not one, but two highly qualified guests, two former teachers who each bring their unique insight to our conversations. In my first interview, I'm speaking with Hilary Einboden, Hillary is a home learning coach who helps parents homeschool effectively. She's on the show to offer ways in which we can encourage our children to explore their passions while also putting down their screens. In my second interview after the break, I'm speaking with Jess Purcell. Jess is a former science teacher who is dedicated to bringing environmental science into the home. And so Jess is on the show to offer up three simple, and I do mean simple, activities that we can do with our kids of all ages at home to get them thinking critically about issues surrounding sustainability. Enjoy my conversations first with Hillary and then with Jess. Hillary, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I'm really looking forward to gleaning your wisdom about how on earth I can be a happy homeschooling parent. Um, you know, we're, we're however many months into homeschooling here, and we're that many months overdue for this conversation. How are you? Oh, I'm very well. Thank you so much for having me on your wonderful show. And I'm excited to talk about the thing that I will stop people pre-COVID. I would, you know, strike up conversations in playgrounds, libraries, and and all my friends know that I just, I love talking about home learning. And when the pandemic hit a year ago, I realized that my consulting work needed to shift. And I just decided to devote myself entirely to supporting parents and helping parents and kids thrive while they learn at home. And 
That doesn't mean that all moments of the day are going to work and be positive. In my home, it is moment to moment, but it's something that I love to talk about. So thanks for having me on today. Well, thank you for coming on. Why don't we start with the elephant in the room, which is that for most of the parents listening right now to this episode, they are homeschooling because circumstances have made it that way, not necessarily because they want to be homeschooling. How on earth can we simplify the homeschooling process so that all of us in the equation, the parents, the children, and everyone in between aren't pulling our hair out by 3 p.m.? One of my favorite things to keep in mind is just the big picture. I think parents these days, we feel so much pressure to do it all. I mean, it's not enough for our kids to just simply be happy, relaxing at home, playing with the things that they enjoy. We feel that we have to keep them screen free or limit screen time. We feel that we need to feed them all the healthy foods. We feel pressure to make sure that they're hitting certain learning standards that in many cases are not realistic. And by the end of the day, the parents that I work with in my coaching business feel like failures. And to me, that is tragic. What I want all of your viewers and listeners to keep in mind is that at the end of the day, if our children are home enjoying themselves, they're learning through life experiences, and maybe picking up some new math or writing skills or being exposed to some new reading experiences, that is a win. That day is a success. So I just want to keep in mind that learning happens in mysterious and silent ways. And we don't always see how our kids are learning. It might be months or even years before we realize that all the little things we did with our children resulted in a young person who loves to read. And we might not have seen it in the moment because they rolled their eyes when we said, hey, let's you know do a little reading right now. So basically, it's about starting small. It's about keeping things simple and being kind to ourselves, having expectations that are realistic. Maybe today is a day that our kids are going to watch more TV than we're comfortable with, but we need to recognize that these are exceptional times. And I promise parents everywhere that if you are happy while you are helping your kids learn at home, that is one of the biggest things that you can give your kid, that you're not feeling too stressed out, you're not feeling too much pressure, and that positive environment that you're creating for your kids truly will help them enjoy learning at home. So basically, I just want us all to keep things simple in our expectations, in the pressures we put on ourselves, and recognize all the different aspects of your home culture that enrich learning. Maybe you do some baking with your kids. Maybe you sit at the table every night at dinner or often and have conversations, talk about things that are happening. There's so much learning that happens in the day, but we can't always see it. We can't always you know, test for it or, or um, tick it off on a box, but it's there and it's kind of embedded in our daily routines. Mm. What I hear you saying is that creating a culture of positivity, despite the circumstances, is much more important right now than hitting these learning objectives. 
And cognitively, I definitely agree with that. But there's another voice in the back of my head saying, well, what's going to (laughs) happen when they go back to school? Is my first grader going to be woefully behind? So what do you say to parents like me who don't want their child to be behind when they eventually go back to school? This is something I hear all of the time. Um, The parents that I work with say those exact words to me. I'm so worried my child is falling behind. Uh, Often parents feel that they themselves are ill-equipped to help their kids learn at home. They doubt themselves and they're racked with stress and worry. This is what I would say. When our children were babies, they didn't all learn to walk at the same time. They didn't all learn to talk at the same time. There were milestones that took different timeframes to come to pass. And so because they were babies, we gave them a little space. We gave them time. We recognized that it was a process. And unless there was something that was, you know, holding them back from developing naturally, Our children eventually did learn to walk. They did learn to talk. They did hit those early milestones. I argue that learning, especially in the elementary years, that learning is very much along those lines. It's something that will happen even with early reading development. Children will learn to read sometimes on their own at the age of four. Otherwise, other children will learn when they're seven or eight and they'll need a lot of instruction, but they'll learn. It might take more time. What I want to say to parents is just because your child is having some struggles learning at home right now, that doesn't mean that they won't be prepared to go back to school next year. If that is something that's on your mind and and your listeners' minds, I want to say that teachers everywhere know that students have been learning in all kinds of different ways during this very challenging time. And so when kids go back to the classroom, I know I'm a former teacher. I know exactly what the approach will be. There's going to be a lot of grace. There's going to be a lot of space. And there's going to be a lot of patience to let kids slowly find their footing. Maybe this time is an opportunity for our children to learn stress management skills, communication skills, learn how to organize their spaces, their rooms, tie their shoes, all the things we never have time for when they do go to school because it's rush, rush, rush out the door. Maybe this is an opportunity for our children to learn those life skills that when we're busy, we don't have as much time for and recognize how important those learning experiences are. They're just as important as learning to read those chapter books or memorizing those multiplication tables. Mm. I would add another life skill to your list, not so much a life skill, but something really important that children need to know, which is one I've been working on with my first grader, which of course is telling time on a clock with hands. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. I want to talk to you about two very important things as they relate to homeschooling during a pandemic. The first is helping to nurture your child's passions or passion projects. And then the second is like, how on earth do we limit screen time when school's online? Those are my two things that I really need answers from you today. So why don't we start with Uh, the passion projects question. I feel as though this pandemic, this great pause is 
if we flip the script on it, it can be a wonderful opportunity for our children to really have the time and space to lean into what interests them. But at the same time, we're so objective driven, especially I'm, I'm a former teacher too, especially in school, we got to hit those objectives, we got to demonstrate competency. So how do we let go and step back and trust our children enough to know that like their passion project is something that they should be spending their time on? And, and I'll just leave it there. But I'll just say my daughter loves Legos. And Legos are a passion of hers. Puppies are another passion. But where's the time for practicing her trick words or practicing reading if she wants to just do Legos all day or draw puppies? This question is so close to my heart because it's something that I actually make more time for in my home than anything quote unquote academic. When I think about myself as an adult learner, my husband as an adult learner, the thing that lights us up, the thing that excites us. It's the thing that we want to do. It's not the thing that we have to do. And parents everywhere will say the number one thing they want for their child is they want their child to be happy. We all want our children to be happy. So how do we achieve that? We want our children to have something inside of them that drives them, that gives them a sense of purpose, that makes them want to get up in the morning and face the day with enthusiasm and excitement. And I guarantee you, it's not sight words. (laughs) It's not handwriting practice. I argue that just like I need my cup cup of coffee in the morning, I need something that kind of revs me up and gets me going. Our children's passions That's their morning coffee equivalent. That's what gets them going. And why wouldn't we want to make that a top priority in our home? I think of the home as a place where we nurture uh, learning culture. Okay, I want my children to have time for music if they're interested. If they want to learn another language, I want to prioritize that. If they want to paint, I want to make sure I have watercolors and pieces of paper ready to go so they can go and do that. Do they want to dance and play music? Do they want to do some inventing? My son is, he's almost 10 years old. I can't believe this. He's almost 10. And he's an inventor. You know, we started the basic invention work when he was four and five because he was delighted by it. And over these years, it's developed and it's grown. And now I see that prioritizing his hands-on time, his Lego time and his invention time with odds and ends has appeared on a continuum, a learning continuum. Now at almost 10 years old, he's a fourth grader. The skills that he began with back then at four or five years old, those skills have developed every year. It's added additional complexity And now at almost 10 years old, those simple machines are moving and they're, and he's able to, you know, control them. And I think about that in terms of passion projects in general, that it might seem like it's just play. Of course, all the research tells us how valuable play is for our children's development. We know that. Um, And we see that our children need to play just simply to nurture that internal world you know, the part of themselves that they don't share with us necessarily, but they have that inner dialogue, narrative, um, and it's very healing for their psyche to be able to spend uninterrupted time playing. 
But just going back to what I was saying before, we all want our children to be happy. It's our number one goal for our kids. When we prioritize passion projects, the things that our children love to do, we're giving them a chance to immerse themselves in the thing that lights them up, the thing that drives them, gives them that sense of purpose. And to me, it's more valuable than anything else. And I I make it a top priority, not just because I see the learning value. I truly do, especially now as my kids get older, but just from the sake of, I just want them to be happy. I want them to find their voice and find out who, who they are, who they're becoming and, and just tap into that. I love how you just said letting go of letting your child guide, being interest-led as opposed to curriculum-led. It's hard for me as a former educator. I'm sure it's hard for a lot of parents. But what I love about your response is that you aptly highlighted all the benefits to letting the child lead, even though that goes against what we know to be true as parents. But now I then have to ask you about the screens. Like what if your child's passion is video games (laughs) or watching Disney or, uh, and I asked that because prior to March of 2020, parents were told time and time and time and time and time and time again to limit screen time. And now here we are, my daughter's on a screen for six and a half hours a day. Have we been wrong to fear screens? Or should we just, again, lower our expectations as it relates to limiting screens during a pandemic? Let's just say it. Our kids are going to get more screen time than we're comfortable with right now. I know it to be true. And I tell all my clients this as well. Just take a breath and accept that, especially if you're living someplace cold right now and with the pandemic, our children are going to have more screen time than they would have in the past than they would if we had a choice. And certainly if it wasn't the pandemic right now, we would have a completely different lifestyle and screen time would be much reduced. Here's how you can reduce screen time by about 30 minutes a day and there's no nagging or stress involved. And what I would say is the first thing that we do is we get those passion projects in place and just as a caveat, yes, our kids love playing games. Yes, our kids love watching shows, but I would take those two things off the table when we talk about passion projects, not because our kids aren't passionate about them. Many, many kids are, of course they are, but because passion projects are about being creative in a way that is not a passive experience. So we want our kids to be the actors and we want our kids to be, maybe if they're passionate about gaming, maybe if they are designing a game, if they are the ones who are, you know, in control of the process, that's something different. But the one word I would keep in mind with passion projects is we don't want our kids to be passive. That is not what we want. We want them to be active, in control, creating, doing, making. And when we limit screen time, the first thing I say to parents is, when you tell your kids we're going to turn off the screens in five minutes, say to them, when we turn off the screens, it's going to be time to dive into those passions. And so knowing they're transitioning from a screen to something that they love to do that is not passively in front of a screen, at least they know it's something they enjoy doing and that's the time for it. What I will say is passion projects, the things that we want to encourage 
and nurture our children in doing won't happen if screen time is not limited. But my second tip is about using something that replaces screen time. So one thing that I've discovered, I kind of discovered this years ago, but it's really helped in the last year. It's about using audiobooks to replicate that immersive narrative experience in the home. But of course, it's screen free. So what I'll do is I'll have an audiobook kind of set up in another space ready to go. Let's say we're transitioning from watching a show to snack time or a meal or, or something like that. When my kids can dive into the world of a story, a great story narrated with, um, you know, an expert narrator. Um, I find that audiobooks are sort of the bridge <laughs> between immersive screen time and complete offline time. So I recommend that parents really try to nurture the use of audiobooks in the home as a way of bringing a narrative experience to the day-to-day life of your home. It will help reduce screen time because it just is a more relaxing way for our kids to go from screens to not screens. And then my third secret weapon for reducing screen time is something that I never really thought about before the pandemic, but this last year I've been testing it out. I start bedtime ridiculously early with my kids because my kids want to delay bedtime. They want to procrastinate. And how do they do it when it's bedtime and they're in their room and they've got their pajamas on? Can I just play for a few more minutes? Can I just stay up and my son wants to read, my daughter wants to, you know, play. And I find that if I start bedtime really early, that buys in extra time in the day where they're not trying to get on a screen. So if you add up the passion projects, the early bedtime where they just want to read or do something in their room to delay bedtime and the audiobooks. I'm saying to parents, let's see if you can cut screen time by 30 minutes a day during these terrible and challenging times. And at the end of the day, we know that's healthier for the kids. And then we're not racked with the guilt and stress knowing that they're getting too much screen time. I am so obsessed with those techniques. Thank you so much. We love children's podcasts in this house just because my children are younger, so they don't really have the concentration to sit for a whole chapter of an audiobook, let's say, but a 15-minute Quick Little Stories podcast. I'll link to some of our favorite kids' podcasts in this week's show notes, but yeah, though, oh, so good. And then I also start bedtime ridiculously early, like right after dinner, like 6.15 p.m., because that is <laughs> 30 minutes earlier where they're not asking to watch a show before bed. So thank you so much for offering those tips up. Hillary, I know you are a homeschooling coach. Tell us what that is and where listeners can find you. To me, home and learning are intertwined. And maybe moving forward, we'll forever see our homes as a place where very valuable learning is happening. And what I do is I help parents who are struggling um, while their kids are learning at home. They, they want their kids to thrive. They want to enjoy what they're doing, but they are feeling the stress. They're feeling the worry and they feel alone, even though they're not alone. But it can feel that way sometimes. And so I think of myself as that 
mentor for parents who are now finding themselves in a role that they've never been in before as as their kid's teacher. Um, So I do one-on-one coaching. My website is homelearningcoach.com. And I'm going to be posting on my website um, a free mini course all about reducing screen time, that 30-minute cutoff of the day that we talked about. I'm actually in the process of loading a free mini course all about that to help people just cope with screen time right now. And um, hopefully we can all feel a little bit more positive about how well our kids are doing as they learn at home. Well, I just followed you on Instagram. And I just want to say that what I what my takeaway as a mom is from this conversation is to take a deep breath, step back and know that creating a culture of positivity, creating a home in which learning can take place is our number one priority right now. It is about, um, I think in my household, it's about fostering a love of learning that is going to extend beyond this pandemic. Would you agree with that? 100%. Rather than think about learning as ticking the box, okay, they've done that and they've done that. It's about laying a foundation and it's it, it takes time and sometimes we don't see the results, but I think it's more powerful and maybe we'll have a broader impact in their life story of learning and and where it takes them in the future. It's about laying the foundation. We're not going to know, we're not going to see the house in all its built glory right now, but we will down the line. Our job as parents is to lay that foundation. That is the perfect place to leave it. Thank you so much, Hillary. You have just reinvigorated me (laughs) as we go into the next three months of homeschooling. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this conversation. I did too. It was great. Thank you so much. We'll be back with my second interview of the episode with Jess Purcell after a quick word from this week's sponsor. The Sustainable Minimalist Podcast is supported by Charlie Banana. I've been telling you about Charlie Banana reusable cloth diapers for a while now. They are so soft, so cute, and right now you can get 31% off your first order when you go to my special URL. I know cloth diapering might sound overwhelming. I've been there. But honestly, Charlie Banana makes it so easy. When I started, I started with just one diaper. Using just one cloth diaper a week saves 52 disposable diapers from the landfill each year. The best thing about diapering is it isn't all or nothing, and you can find the routine that works for you. Use Charlie Banana one-size cloth diapers on the weekends or just for overnights. There's no right or wrong, and every tiny step helps the environment. Order Charlie Banana reusable cloth diapers today and make sure you get 31% off your first purchase. Go now to charliebanana.com slash minimal and use promo code minimal at checkout. This is a limited time deal, so don't wait. charliebanana.com slash minimal and enter code minimal at checkout. And we're back with Jess Purcell, 
Jess, thank you so much for coming on the show. I am really thrilled for you to help me bring more science into my own homeschooling routine. Before we get there, why don't we start with you telling us who you are and what you do? Great. Well, thanks for having me, Stephanie. My name is Jess Purcell, and I am a former science educator, uh, high school science mainly. I worked in the classroom for about 10 years, and then with the birth of my second child, got the opportunity to stay home and have been home with my two now for a couple years. And recently, because of the pandemic, have now transitioned into homeschooling them. And as you can probably relate, Stephanie, I know you've got a teaching background too. Um, Even though you're out of the classroom, a teacher is hard to stop teaching. And because of my passion for the environment and for sustainable living, I felt the need to want to make sure that I incorporated as much sustainability science and just nature education with my own kids as I had them home with me to give them a really good foundation of seeing how they're connected to the natural world. I know that you have come armed to our conversation today with three science experiments for kids, and I am really excited to try them out on a personal level with my six-year-old because I feel as though in my house, I try to lead with eco-friendliness and I try to impart those values onto her, but maybe 80% of the time, she's just not super excited about it, (laughs) you know, like separating trash. Let's just take that example. She knows, let's say, that an apple core goes in the compost container, but she's just not invested and therefore she's just not necessarily motivated to do it 100% of the time. So I'm really looking forward to trying the science experiment path realm (laughs) to see if that really actually does get her invested. So let's just jump right in to one of the three experiments that you came to talk to us about today. Pick one and tell us how to do it. Okay, great. Um, Well, let's go on your separating trash idea, just going off what you were saying with your daughter. One of the things that I've done with my kids that they really got excited about was comparing packaging. And letting them see that, you know, a lot of the packaging that we get just has to go right into the trash because it's made of plastic, which comes from petroleum, and there's nothing we can do with it. And so it has to go in the trash if it can't be recycled, which most of those plastics that come in, unfortunately, they're compound plastics, and so they just can't go in the recycle bin. But showing them that there's an alternative, like starch packaging peanuts um, and starch based packaging, and then letting them explore simply the difference between the two has really been actually a lot of fun. And so one of the experiments that we did was we just took simple, what we'd consider styrofoam packing peanuts and compared them to starch packing peanuts and what the difference is in terms of their breakdown. I get a lot of questions about, well, how do you know if you're looking at packaging peanuts, how do you know if they're styrofoam or petroleum-based or how do you know if they're plant-based? And if you just dip them in water, the ones that get sticky and actually start to dissolve, those are your plant-based, where the ones that don't do anything in water are your petroleum-based. And then simply with my kids, just getting out a big bucket of water, letting them throw some plant-based in one bucket and some petroleum-based in another bucket, 
and stirring them around, making predictions, you know, trying to get a little bit of that science out of them, like, okay, let's predict what happens. And they get to see in front of their own eyes that, wow, those petroleum-based packing peanuts, they don't go anywhere, which lends themselves to a deeper conversation about how petroleum products and plastic products don't go anywhere. Whereas something that's plant-based will dissolve and will go back into nature because they do dissolve in water because they're starch-based, which then we can add that to why we can compost them, which then can kind of domino into even deeper conversations. So just by playing, you know, which I try to attack my science with my kids, they're five and eight. So they just want to play with playing with water and packaging peanuts and then bringing the science in behind it. They now luckily still get excited because they see these experiments as a time to play and explore. And then I can kind of sneak in a little science behind it. (laughs) Yeah. What I really love about this experiment in particular is that I can see it being applied to a wide range of ages. I know that my three-year-old would love to just splash around in some water and throw some packing peanuts in a bucket of water. However, you could take this up into high school level science by extending the activity into discussing polystyrene in our oceans and what it's doing to wildlife. So I love that applicability. And now, This is sort of related to packing peanuts, but not. I know I saw on, I believe it was your Instagram, that you took compostable packaging from Impact Snack Bars. Listeners, you may have caught my interview with Corey Noble of Impact Snacks. Impact Snacks has fully 100% compostable snack bar packaging. Can you walk me through how you kind of did a similar experiment, but with soil? Oh, sure. So... Applying that idea that you can take the basics of creating a plastic type material, um, which a lot of times you'll see it marketed as a bioplastic, and using that to make materials that hold up for packaging like a traditional plastic would, but that can actually decompose is a pretty cool and relatively new uh, concept out on the market. And so Impact Snacks had actually reached out because they have, like you said, they make their wrapper that is fully compostable and meaning that it'll actually break down in a backyard compost system. A lot of times, again, with greenwashing, you have to watch something might say compostable, but it really just means, you know, in a a community facility, that would have to be more industrial. Anyway, I got really excited about this because their wrappers are made of a soy-based cellulose, so plant-based, but coming from soy waste products. And so what I decided to do was actually test it out in order to see just how quickly it would break down. Um, we, I just made mini compost containers out of the big yogurt jars, you know, that you can get with that are made of plastic, put a bunch of holes in them, put in the necessary things that you need for compost. So your greens, so anything like fresh fruits and vegetables, your browns, so your leaves or your dried paper or cardboard, and then some soil, because that's the source of your bacteria that you need to actually do the breaking down. And then put in their wrapper, their soy-based wrapper, and then made another similar mini compost bin and just compared it to a traditional plastic and aluminum uh, compound wrapper to watch the difference. 
Now, because they they do hold up really well, which is good, it probably will take a good six to eight months to break down, especially I'm located in Pennsylvania. So right now it's quite chilly and compost does a lot better when it's warmer. Um, But it's a fun long-term experiment to really be able to see just how good an innovation like this could be for the planet, for us trying to still buy snacks, but buying snacks with a more eco-conscious lens. Well, I love that your first experiment that you brought today has to do with plastic and the problems associated with single-use packaging. But the second experiment you've brought with you today has to do with how we can and why it's important to reduce food waste. So talk to me about your lettuce experiment. Sure. So another thing I'd like to do as much as possible at home is demonstrate that we've got to avoid food waste as much as possible. Uh, It's kind of an ongoing theme of our house because the more food we waste, the more that goes to landfill. And unfortunately, in a landfill, there is no oxygen. And so that food breaks down in the absence of oxygen and makes this really potent greenhouse gas, methane, which we've probably all heard about. It's a lot better. Methane is a lot better at holding and trapping heat. It actually lasts longer in the atmosphere than, say, another greenhouse gas like carbon dioxide. And so it is much more potent in contributing to problems of global warming and climate change. And so obviously that's a deep science concept that a five and eight-year-old may not be able to grasp, but a high school student could. So just to lay that foundation about how we don't waste food and why we don't want to, just taking the end of lettuce that we would normally throw into the compost and putting it in a shallow glass of water and then watching that center part regrow, it's eye-opening for a five and eight-year-old because they see, wow, wait, I thought this was done. This is junk. This is trash. And no, actually, there's still life to be gotten out of the lettuce. And from a mathematical and science standpoint, it's also a really great activity to get younger kids to start graphing. And they can actually measure the change in growth every two days. And after about two weeks, they can actually have a concrete data visualization for themselves, you know, a little graph to show exactly how their lettuce grew. So it hits multiple keys, you know, (laughs) environment and STEM skills. I'm just thinking back to my teaching days where, you know, we're lesson planning and we have to list out the unit objectives and um, the standards that the lesson meets. And so this one definitely checks off a bunch of learning standards. And it makes me think about my garden this summer. I didn't necessarily have science in the back of my mind when my husband and I undertook our our ambitious garden. But uh, science and education was a unexpected, excuse me, an unexpected benefit of the garden. My six-year-old got so into it. She would dig up the potatoes, you know, look and see if they were ready. If not, uh, cover them back up. She would pick the cucumbers. She would measure the growth of the vines of the cucumbers. And so growing, I think, is, I don't want to say universal, but I would say that children tend to love any experiment in which growing a food item is involved. Would you agree with that? Do you see that in your own home with your own children? Oh, wholeheartedly. Absolutely. 
that just them being able to witness something start from from seed or a small seedling. And it, it kind of puts the power in their hands where you give them a watering can and they get to water the plant or they get to tend it and, and pick the, the vegetables that are growing or, or make sure that there's plenty of water when it's dry out. I really think it's incredibly powerful for them uh, because they, they do. They get to see how they can impact making something. Hmm. Your last experiment today has to do with cranberries and floating and sinking. And I love this one because we I know I have an awful lot of leftover cranberries in my CRISPR <laughs> and I don't know what to do with them. So walk me through it. <laughs> sure. So this one um, maybe is a little less on the sustain- sustainability side, but it's definitely great for building those critical thinking skills. Um especially in the environment that our kids are growing up in, you know, being able to be scientifically literate and being able to analyze information and, and decide if it's true or false, this kind of can hit at those because you're building those foundational skills. So simply by taking some fresh cranberries, or maybe in your case, not so fresh, they'll still work, um, not the dried ones, they won't work. And giving them to your kids and saying, okay, well, what's going to happen if I put these in water? Are they going to float or sink? You know, so a one or the other choice. And then once they've chosen float or sink, throw them in water and they'll discover that very quickly. Yes, they float. But then asking them the why question, why they're floating, will start to get them thinking about, hmm, well, is there something different inside them? What else do I know that floats? Um, will actually hopefully start turning those critical thinking skills on in their head. And then cutting one open and seeing that, wow, and cranberries actually really has some pretty defined air pockets inside, which is why it can float, then gives them a concrete answer to their why. It's very simple, but it's a really great way to walk younger learners, especially, or older learners as a great introduction to utilizing the scientific method of going through those step-by-step processes to solve a problem. What I love about you and the experiments specifically that you brought today is that they're not all that hard. They don't require a lot of advanced time or preparation on the front end. And you don't have to be a teacher to be able to execute them properly as the parent. But I am willing to bet that there are still some listeners listening right now who are saying to themselves, we're in the middle of a pandemic. I'm just trying to get through the day. I am not in any place to start a science experiment with my children. Do you have any words of encouragement for those listeners? Absolutely. If nothing else, get outside. Get your children and get yourself as well, because self-care is just as important. Get yourself outside, whether that means out on your balcony or out in the local park or if you have access to green space, out in a green space or backyard, and just let yourself and your kids explore. Because there's nothing more valuable than being able to just get outside and listen and look and start to connect with your outside, whatever that looks like, whether it be, like I said, a back porch or a playground or a backyard, or if you're privileged to have big green open spaces, allow those connections to nature to start to foster because it's amazing what that can do 
not only to your learning, but just your physical and mental well-being. And especially in times like now, a sense of calm and a sense of connection is so important. And if you can do that and, and start watching the birds outside or discovering the worms in your backyard, um, there's a lot of science to be learned without having to do an experiment. And for those listeners who are listening right now and are thinking to themselves, oh my goodness, thank you so much, Jess, for giving me three activities that are educational and fun to do with my kids. I would suggest to them that they head on over to your Instagram and your blog. I'm scrolling through right now. You have an investigation on how vinegar works as a cleaning agent. Uh, You have how and why to propagate plants in water. So we really just hit the tip of the thoughtfully sustainable iceberg (laughs) today. (laughs) Where can my listeners find you online? Um, They can head right to my website, thoughtfullysustainable.com. Or if they're on social media, um, you can find me on Instagram or Facebook or Pinterest and YouTube, um, all under that same name, Thoughtfully Sustainable. I will link to your online presences and this week's show notes. But Jess, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. I am going to go get a bucket of water and do the packing peanuts right now. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, awesome. I'm so excited, Stephanie. (laughs) Thanks so much for having me. I so hope you enjoyed my conversations with Hilary Einboden and Jess Purcell. I have linked to all of their online presences in this week's show notes, which you can find at mamaminimalist.com forward slash 171. Next week, we haven't done a solo episode in a while. So next week, I am bringing you a solo episode and I'm so excited for it. I've loved talking to people. I love interviewing, but I equally love a good old solid solo episode. So I will see you next week. Stay healthy, my friends.